Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 10. It will be helpful if you have your Bibles open there to follow along as we go. I realize we're a little more than three months away from Christmas and that it might have felt a little jarring, but I wanted us to sing What Child Is This a moment ago because I couldn't think of a better song to make the point the pastor writing Hebrews makes in our text this morning. I'm sometimes amazed at what Christmas carols actually say when I listen to them. Maybe it's just that we hear them so often every year in so many different contexts, but I find myself sometimes surprised by the potency of their lyrics. The second verse of What Child Is This is like that, though in the case of this carol, part of the reason it may seem so striking is perhaps because verse 2 is frequently omitted in popular Christmas album recordings. I remember the first time I ever sang verse 2 of What Child Is This in church, how surprised I was by it. The carol poses two questions. We all know the first question by the title. What child is this? Verse 1 begins. For this is Christ the King, it answers. But it is the question of verse 2 that moves the carol closer towards the heart of what Christmas is all about. Verse 2 begins by asking not who, but why. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and lamb are feeding? Why? Why be there? Why do this? For what reason do angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? Verse 2 continues with the answer. Good Christian fear. For sinners... Here the silent word is pleading. What's happening here? What's happening in a manger scene surrounded by barn animals? It's for sinners. Because what's happening here has a goal already in view. The manger was the beginning. The cross was the destination. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. It is for sinners that the word was made flesh, the carol says. And I suppose perhaps he was silent in the moment pictured here, sleeping in Mary's arms. But according to Hebrews 10, verse 5, it was not with silence that the Son of God came into the world, but with clear-eyed speech. Verse 5 of Hebrews 10 is the center of our passage this morning, and it is the hinge point. It is the turning point, not only of our text, but of all redemptive history. 
The reason I know the Christmas carol we sang this morning has it right is the first word of verse 5. Look there, if you would, in your Bibles. The pastor introduces the speech of the Christ as he was coming into the world with the word, consequently. Therefore, for this reason, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he spoke. We'll spend time considering together what it is that Christ spoke, the words of Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. That will take some explaining in a moment. But to begin this morning, I first want you to see the hinge itself. On the eve of the incarnation, Christmas Eve in heaven, if you will, on the eve of the word becoming flesh, Christ spoke. And the words he spoke, the point he makes in speaking the words of Psalm 40 was a consequence of something. Something was such that in the very act of taking on human flesh and blood, the word of God explained why he was doing it. Our passage naturally divides into two parts around that hinge point. In verses 1 to 4, we consider the reason why Christ said what he said when he came into the world. In verses 5 to 10, we then consider what Christ said when he came into the world. That's our simple outline this morning. Why Christ said what he said, and then what Christ said. So then, as we re-enter the thought of Hebrews now in chapter 10, we are first asking, why what is the reason why Christ spoke the words of Psalm 40 on the eve of his incarnation? Verse 1 tells us. We'll call it the problem of imperfection. The pastor says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, there are a number of thoughts in that verse, but when you boil it down to the main assertion, what you have is the law can never make perfect those who draw near. The fundamental problem with the law, by which the pastor means the whole Old Testament system of tent, priests, sacrifices, purification rituals, and the like, that is what the law, the problem with the law is that it could not perfect those drawing near to God. This isn't the first time we've encountered the language of perfection in Hebrews applied to people, applied to worshipers. Back in chapter 7, verse 11, the pastor wrote, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? In dealing with the same contrast we find in our passage this morning, the pastor then went on to clarify matters, a few verses later in Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19, saying, On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. 
But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Notice that this perfection is what's required to draw near to God. According to our text this morning in Hebrews 10, the law never provided that. But what is it exactly that must be made perfect to draw near to God? This has been in focus recently in Hebrews. In chapter 9, verse 9, the pastor said that according to this, meaning the old covenant arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It is exactly that kind of perfection the pastor has in view here in our passage as well. You see that in the contrast he sets up in verse 2 of chapter 10. The law could never make perfect those who draw near, verse 2. Otherwise, would they, the sacrifices and so on, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers having once been cleansed, which they weren't, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, which they did. The point in verse 2 is that that wasn't what happened. The language that's translated consciousness of sins in chapter 10, verse 2, is the same as what we encountered in chapter 9, verse 9, where the pastor made the point that sacrifices have been offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The point's the same. The issue is what can deal with sin. The idea in the Greek verb is that to perfect something is to bring it to its intended goal. So if the intended goal for the people of God is to be in the presence of God, then what's required? Well, you know this from our study last time in Hebrews. For us to enter the presence of God requires one thing, brothers and sisters, the putting away of sin. Complete forgiveness to borrow the language of chapter 9, verse 26. As one commentator explains it, the perfection that the pastor writing Hebrews has in mind does not involve a lack of flaws, but rather a state of right relationship with God in which the worshipers are once and for all cleansed from sin. That's what has always been required. And that's what the law was never able to accomplish. The entire system of the law was but a shadowy picture of the need for the removal of sin to approach the living God. True cleansing from sin is what's needed to access God's presence. That's the point. In the Greek Old Testament, the consecration by which priests were authorized to approach God in the context of the sacrificial system is described as their being perfected. That was the shadow. This is the reality. The pastor envisions here the whole people of God as being perfected through such a definitive 
cleansing from sin that they are authorized to enter the true dwelling place of God as we discussed last time. It's salvation. Life with God in a place. The law could not bring that about. Over and over in Hebrews, we've heard the pastor hammering away at the law's inability to achieve that purpose. Here, it becomes as clear as it ever does. The law can never make perfect those who draw near. It wasn't designed to do that. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The pastor began in verse 1, just as we saw in chapter 8 that the tent Moses was instructed to build was a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things, so also were the sacrifices carried out within it. They had no future but to foreshadow the work of Christ. At the very end of chapter 9, the pastor said that the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ effectively provides for future, ultimate salvation. By contrast, chapter 10, verse 1 says, The law has but a shadow of these good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, or as I would prefer to translate it, not the reality itself of those things. It was an intimation, a pattern given through Moses that made comprehensible the reality itself yet to come from the perspective of the law. It was a divinely ordained anticipation, a foreshadowing of God's full salvation. The point we have seen over and over in our study in Hebrews is that that salvation ultimately is brought about by Jesus. He has made cleansing from sin and access to God available. He has opened the way for those who persevere to enter God's presence finally, once for all, at the judgment. These are the good things to come, to which verse 1 refers. The saving work of Christ to which the law had always pointed. And we shouldn't be surprised that the law could not perfect those in this way who sought to draw near to God. It was in fact obvious, the pastor says, as he has before, by the very repetitive nature of its sacrifices. They needed to be done over and over, demonstrating that they hadn't really dealt with the problem. If you have to take your car back to the mechanic every week to fix the same problem, that would be a fair indication that he or she hasn't succeeded in fixing it. The sacrifices never brought about the true inner cleansing of the person, dear friends. Instead, as verse 3 explains, in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Their perpetual offering only demonstrated their inability to remove sin, and so they become a continual reminder that sin still remains. As one commentator summarizes it, the annual cycle of sacrifices climaxing with the Day of Atonement became an outward, visible, continuous memorial to sin 
forcing people to live their lives with the awareness of their inability to be free from its pollution. That's what old covenant sacrifices were because in and of themselves they did nothing to deal with the actual problem. Why not? Because of what the pastor says in verse 4, as straightforwardly as you could possibly imagine, Hebrews 10 verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible. How could the blood of mere animals purge the human heart of the pollution brought about by disobedience? It couldn't. And yet, that is what needs to happen. Somehow, right? The taking away of sins is what's required. The taking away of sins is what will make perfect those who draw near. Only it's not possible for animal sacrifices to do that. It will take better sacrifices than these, dear friends. Which is why Christ said what he said when he came into the world. Do you see? The promise had been made. We've seen this lots in Hebrews. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, the pastor said back in chapter 2, verse 5. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, chapter 4, verse 9 says. We know what the goal is, but because of Israel's and our disobedience and its defilement that it brings, forgiveness is necessary. The pastor made clear in chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But now in chapter 10, verse 4, we have it plainly stated, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what has to be the answer? What is the logical outworking of those facts? It is the first word of verse 5. Consequently. Consequently, Christ came into the world. This is what Christmas is all about. The one who was Son, the radiance of God's glory, was made lower than the angels, partaking of the same flesh and blood as you and me that he might taste death for everyone, offered once to bear the sins of many, as chapter 9, verse 28 said, also that the promise could be realized. In the new covenant, sin no longer dominates our lives, dear friends, nor does it prevent our access to God. We can, indeed we must, draw near. It is what we were created for. That's why Christ said what he said. He fully comprehended what he was doing. It had been his father's plan all along, the unchangeable character of his purpose, and the son would bring it to pass in perfect obedience. So let's look at it. In verses 5 to 10 now, we consider what Christ said when he came into the world. 
If the reason why was the problem of imperfection, now what Christ said shows us the solution for imperfection. And our time is quite limited. We can still do a lot. Verses 5 through 7 here are, as you see, a quotation. What the Son said on the eve of his incarnation, according to the pastor writing Hebrews, were the words of Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. The pastor first quotes those verses in verses 5 to 7 here, and then explains their significance in verses 8 to 10. Listen once more as I read verses 5 to 7 of Hebrews 10. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The use of Psalm 40 in Hebrews 10 is an exegetically fascinating but challenging issue that we will not explore in full detail, and yet the bottom line of it seems clear enough to me. I think that by speaking the words of Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8 as he came into the world, Christ's focus was that he came to do the will of his Father. That's what he was affirming. His incarnation was itself an act of obedience which he would carry all through his life. For the Son, as Jesus, the words of David recorded in this psalm would take on newfound significance. For great David's greater Son, the obedient act of assuming humanity would mean his death, and he knew it. If you have your Bible with you and you want to do this with me quickly, turn back to Psalm 40. We won't take much time in it, but I think it's valuable for us to see how these verses worked in their original context. I'm suggesting that the Son speaks the words of Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, as an affirmation of his obedience to do the will of God. What I want you to see is that that's what King David meant by them also though the implication they had would be much different for David than for Jesus. In other words, what I want us to see is simply that the son's superior obedience was prefigured by the obedience of David. Psalm 40, if you're there, is in the end a lament psalm in which David asks the Lord to rescue him from his enemies. You see this in the second half of the psalm. For example, in verse 13, David says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. In the first part of the psalm, David remembers past instances of God's deliverance when he was in desperate straits. The psalm begins this way, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. We don't know the specific circumstances David faced, but what's clear is that he wrote Psalm 40 in a time between past episodes of God's deliverance in his life and times, even present times, and future times when he knows he will need God to deliver him yet again. And in that space, 
looking back on God's past deliverances and trusting God for the future. Watch what David says in verses 6 to 8 of Psalm 40, the words spoken by Christ. Psalm 40, verse 6, David says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. In those verses, King David expresses that he has given himself and the entirety of his life to God. He has pledged himself to do God's will, knowing that God in his righteousness will deliver and rescue the one who belongs to him. David knows that. David trusts that. And so David obeys. You have given me an open ear, it says in verse 6. In other words, the Lord worked in David so that he was obedient and compliant to God's will. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that there's a key difference there between the psalm and how that psalm is quoted in Hebrews, right? Following many prominent manuscripts of the Greek Old Testament, that is, the Greek translation of the original Hebrew wording, the pastor writing the book of Hebrews has the word body instead of the notion of an open ear, as we just read from Psalm 40. But the sense of it is similar. One commentator explains, it is probable that a translator took the ears to be a metaphor in which the part stood for the whole, the ears for the entire body which God prepared as a vehicle of obedience. In hearing the Lord, we rightly then obey the Lord in all that we are. In other words, the point in the original wording of the psalm and in the version that the pastor writing Hebrews quotes from is the same point. The king expresses that he will walk in obedience to the Lord. On the lips of David, these words are a reminder that he is indeed the king of the Lord's choosing for Israel. Perhaps you will recall what Samuel said to Saul. At a critical moment when the Lord rejected Saul as king over his people. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 15 verses 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel's point in explaining God's rejection of Saul and the point of our passage is that even though God established the sacrifices of animals, what gladdens God is the heart obedience of his people. And the king of all people must embody that. Saul did not and was rejected. But David understood. Behold, I have come. Verse 7 of Psalm 40 says, 
In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Flawed, though he certainly was, David had it right. God is pleased not by animal sacrifices themselves, but by heart obedience. His delight is in those whose hearts are clean and obedient and faithful. The Davidic king, as the representative of the people, had a special calling to give himself entirely to God, to do God's will. But we spent almost two years studying Samuel at Christ the King. You know this, the Davidic covenant would ultimately be fulfilled through another obedient king, one who was fully obedient through a fully obedient son of David. There would be one in the line of this king who would give himself fully and completely to God throughout his life. His name is Jesus the Messiah. And these words of Psalm 40 are his now. As such, they are full of deeper meaning than David could have ever known. Hebrews understands the words of the psalm as they pertain to Jesus Christ to be quite literal. The Lord did not desire from Jesus sacrifices and offerings. Instead, he asked for Jesus to give of himself, to give of his own body in sacrifice, to himself be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the one sacrifice that could fully satisfy the Lord. Why? Because Christ's sacrifice represents that which is precious to God above all other things, the doing of his will. On the lips of Christ, as he came into the world, the words of David are now fully realized. A body have you prepared for me. I have come to do your will, O God. As it was in his birth, so also would it be in his death. You remember the scene Jesus alone going to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, to ready himself for what he knew was to happen. What did he say then as he was going to the cross? Do you remember? My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I have come to do your will, O God. Samuel had said, to obey is better than sacrifice. Whoever had obeyed like this, whoever had perfectly fulfilled the Father's will, everything written of him in the book he did, dear friends, that's why the angels sang when he was born. They knew what was entailed in it. The will of the Father, shared by the Son, was to be realized. He was appointed the heir of all things. It would be for the joy that was set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross. And God would be pleased. There could not have been in the entire course of time a more precious moment to the heart of God. For as one scholar puts it, 
wholehearted obedience is the sacrifice which God really desires, the sacrifice which he received in perfection from his servant son when he came into the world. The psalmist's words, I have come to do your will, O God, sum up the whole tenor of our Lord's life and ministry and death and express the essence of that true sacrifice that God desires. Brothers and sisters, this is the better sacrifice of which the pastor spoke in chapter 9. That which Peter refers to as the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The son, the son who had been equal with God, volunteers himself to carry out God's ultimate saving will. To do it, he accepts the human body prepared for him. He steps into the place of God's human creature, taking responsibility for its history, bringing about its destiny. And when it was finished, as Jesus himself would declare it was from the cross, when he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many children to glory had made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What then was the result? We already know it from all that we've studied in Hebrews so far, but here it is again in the end of verse 9 of our passage. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Only does away is too gentle. Try translating it annul, abolish, kill, destroy. That's what Christ did in this sense to the sacrifices that were part of the whole Mosaic system. I like how one commentator summarizes it. Christ's repudiation of those sacrifices was an annulment of that whole first system as a means of access to God. The obedience of Christ described in Psalm 40, is the means by which the old system is removed and the new system of heart obedience is established. It's the new covenant. It's the new and living way that has been opened for us, brothers and sisters. The incarnate Christ's perfect accomplishment of God's will is the source of our holiness, you and I can draw near to God. That's where our passage ends in verse 10. And by that will, the pastor says, the will of God, Father and Son, shown to be in perfect harmony, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, Christ has set his people apart for God by cleansing them from the pollution and dominion of sin. We have once been cleansed. Our sins have been put away. We have been sanctified once for all. How then shall we live? We who have been made holy unto God by the saving work of Christ, the Apostle Paul answered that question at the end of his exposition of God's mercy 
in his famous words of Romans 12, verse 1. Hear them anew this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Jesus' resolve to do obediently God's will is the essence of the true sacrifice and worship God desires. What God wanted and what God still wants is obedience. It's the only sacrifice that's acceptable to him. The, body, the Bible always defines true worship in the terms set forth for Jesus by King David in Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offering you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold... I have come to do your will, O God. Like David, like Paul, like every woman and man of faith through human history, this is what our bodies and our lives are now for, dear friends. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.